Welcome to the second series of By Design. My name is Bruce Boucher, and I'm director of Sir John Soane's Museum. Soane's idea for his museum was to be an academy of the arts, where art, architecture, and design could be discussed, explored, and celebrated. It's with this in mind that we have collaborated with Luke Irwin, the distinguished rug designer, who feels passionately about the role of design and whose support has been fundamental to this series. Chaired by Alice Roththorne, design writer and critic, and Will Gompertz, artistic director at the Barbican, these talks explore the impact of design on several internationally renowned designers. And you can find podcasts of the first series on our website, sewn.org. For this second series, we invited Dan Pearson, Ilsa Crawford, Erdem Moraliolu, Amanda Levite, and Phyllida Barlow to present an object that has inspired them, and through that object, to reflect on their own design practice. We originally launched the second series in February 2020 with Alice Roththorne talking to the designer Dan Pearson at the Sone. And we're pleased to present the remaining talks through a series of individual events filmed at the museum. Thanks to our collaboration with Luke Irwin, we are not charging for these talks, but it would be wonderful if you would consider making a contribution, which would enable us to continue our wider learning programs. And you can do so on Sone.org. I hope you enjoyed the talk. Welcome to the library and dining room at the Sir John Soane's Museum for this edition of By Design. Our guest today is an internationally renowned architect who's been working in the field for several decades and has made some of my favourite buildings. She's a CBE, she has won the Reba Sterling Prize and she has made, among other things, the Lord's Media Centre and the Selfridges building in Birmingham. She's an extraordinary architect, unique in a way, and I'm delighted to be having this conversation with her. Amanda Lavite, welcome to By Design. Well, thank the you. way these conversations start is with an object that you've chosen and an explanation for why you've chosen it. Okay, I've chosen a book, and the book is The Museum Without Walls by André Malraux. Now, André Malraux is a somewhat um, eccentric art historian, kind of a little bit parallels with John Soane. And he was a minister of culture yeah. and he organised a fantastic PR coup in, in lending the Mona Lisa um, to America in the 70s. I knew nothing about Malraux when I came across this book in a second-hand bookshop yeah. when I was a student of architecture and the bookshop was next to the restaurant where I used to waitress three nights a week. <laughs> and I would always go in there and have a little browse around. Yeah. It was mostly kind of art and architecture books. And I came across this little, little book and it was the title that got me. Yeah. Knowing nothing about Mulroe, knowing nothing about the content of the book, but the title Museum Without Walls. For an architect, right? Was so provocative yeah. and so evocative that I bought it just like that. And very untypically, the English translation, Museum Without Walls, in my view, is better than the French original, which was the Musée Imaginaire, yes. which is often translated in the English version as the Imag Museum of the Imagination. But that doesn't, if, I, if it had if that had been the title, I wouldn't have bought it. I was 
obsessed at the time by kind of a buildingless architecture and you know I was really interested in conceptual art and I was interested in the power of ideas to drive things rather than the form or the object itself. And then I, I, I read the book and it, I mean, it, it is a provocation and I read it not as a kind of academic treatise which you can take, you know, you can have that reading of it. Yeah but as a trigger for me to think about things in a completely different way. This book is actually about the kind of democratization of art. Uh -huh. um, you know, how photography broadened, you know, but before photography, you had to be either very rich to travel or rich to go to people's houses where there was amazing art and yeah. um, archaeology. And, and you could, you know, argue for 100 years that, that our history of art was kind of defined by what we could photograph. And he talked about that and how that kind of almost challenges the, the notion of the museum. He said that it was very, very kind of poignant. He said the museum is an affirmation museum without walls is an interrogation okay. and you know if you think about now I mean you know these these last two years have been probably the biggest pivot point since the end of the cold war with the, the pandemic but also confronting um, racial injustice yeah. and confronting structural inequality and, and sustainability. And sustainability yeah. in everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it... So I think it's incredibly relevant because it's, you know, if you see the museum as an interrogation, what do we have to do to keep museums relevant and to speak to the collective we and to tell different stories? So, so what was his museum without walls? Was it... Was it, it was, uh, it's a notion. It's not a thing. It's, it's you know, it's a specu... It wasn't even a speculation. It was talking about, you know, the, the power of images in your imagination. You yeah. kind of hold on to your own um, museum, if you like. And it, it, for me, it was such a strong notion and it's really it's something that I've just kind of held on to ever since I was a student and it's played out I think in various buildings that um, we've designed and, and uh, buildings that I did with with Jan and, and buildings that we're doing now and one of the first competitions that Jan and I did this is as future, as systems. future systems we're going back now this yeah. was um, must have been late 80s yeah. early 90s um, we did a competition for the Museum of the Acropolis. Oh, yeah. We lost, I mean, you know, massive loss because we didn't even make it to the next stage. However, our entry got more published in the end than the, the, the winning entry. And, and we, I remembered this, this book and I, I dug it out and we, we called it the Museum Without Walls because it was a museum to house the... Um, the Elgin marbles, yeah, the speculating that they would be returned from the um, British Museum. And we designed this building that was a com north facing, completely kind of glazed, very soft, organic form. Looking up? Looking up to where the pieces came from. Yeah. 
and the there were no walls in this museum. There was simply there was simply a structure to support the Elgin marbles, but in their correct configuration, not the kind of inverted yeah. configuration that they are at the moment. Um, so you had this kind of literal and metaphorical connection between where the sculptures had come from. And so the was, there, was there a direct sight line of the Elgin yes. marbles, the, the I mean, Parthenon frieze yes. there, and then you'd look up towards yes. the Acropolis and, and yeah. you would imagine, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So, so that, that, that was the that was a quite a kind of um, literal um, interpretation maybe of the music, but we did call our competition entry the museum without walls. So thinking about context and, and thinking about a museum without walls, we're, we're sitting in a museum which very much has walls, uh, and and it has its own very specific context, which is sort of, an, to a certain extent, the, the, we're inside the brain of an, brain of an eccentric connoisseur, yeah. in a way, are yeah. we not? Yeah. What, what's your relationship with, with this building and its collection? Well, I, I think, you know, for me, what I love is the kind of the juxtaposition of objects and this kind of uh, conversation that it sets up across generations, across continents, across... Uh, centuries yes. um, and the sort of unexpected juxtapositions. Uh, as a, an architect, what I admire most about this building is his mastery of natural light. Yes. And I think it was Philip Johnson who said, Soane taught us how to display paintings because he was the master of top-lit yeah. indirect light. And you see that in many, many of the spaces here. And in, in fact, one of my favorite spaces is the breakfast room. Oh, I love the breakfast room, yeah. Where, yeah. you know, the, the indirect light which falls on the center of the, the circular breakfast table. And then around the edge, you get this incredible sort of warm, honey-colored light through the amber glass and it's like a very gentle wake up beginning to your day and then you have the the mirrors around the edge of the space so that when you're it, it you know imagine that he had guests for for breakfast and you want to be quiet and you want to read your paper and you don't really want to be engaging with people you can see them in the reflection but you don't have to talk to them yeah and who would you have around that breakfast table <laughs> well, I'd have him for a start. He, what would you ask him? I don't know. What would I ask him? Because he was an architect as well, of course. Of course. Um, and the, you know, Dulwich Picture Gallery. I guess I'd ask him how to do it. How, you know, how... Mm. Talk more about, you know, this idea of the, the light coming in directly, the way it kind of tumbles down. Um, you know, what, what triggered that? What... what what gave you that um, inspiration to, to use light in a completely different way. I mean, the other thing about that's so specific about this place is it's not just the interconnectedness of things and the objects, mm. of, you know, and that's very important, but it's the interconnectedness of spaces, whether he does it by taking out a piece of floor or a wall yeah. or inserting a grill so that you always have yeah. views down, it's views dynamic. up, um, mm. the reflections. It's, it's incredibly complex um, three-dimensionally, but at the same time, it feels 
I mean, it feels quite challenging, it's quite provocative, but at the same time it feels comfortable and quite cosy. So is this, you know, and that in a way is the great um, challenge, I think, to architects. How can you make a space feel aspirational, inspiring, but yet feel very comfortable? Yeah. Well, it's just, to make you feel at home. Well, you've made some of those buildings which are both aspirational and inspirational and make you feel at home. We'll come on to those in a minute. But I just want to go back to the beginning of your career. So you're a student. You've read Marose's book uh, of those ideas, a museum of ideas, of, of not building. Mm. Um, uh, you then go to work with Richard Rogers, who also has quite a lot of ideas in and around that sphere, very interested in, 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 in building and its role has to play with, within a community. And actually, you know, every bit of space between the buildings is as mm. important as the buildings themselves. How did that relationship with, with Rogers develop? Because he had, by this stage, done the Pompidou, hadn't he? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, I, the Pompidou was and still is one of my favourite buildings. It's extraordinary, um, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it, and the Pompidou was a provocation. Yeah. You know, it, it changed forever the way that we see and use and experienced museums. Um, you know, it, it stripped away all the kind of pomposity. Instead of grand steps leading up to it, there's just this very kind of sloping plaza in front that belongs to the public. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it was transformational. And so I was, you know, a massive fan. It was my kind of dream to, to, to work there. And, and he'd just finished Lloyd's yeah. at the time that... Um, with a similar inside-outside idea. Yeah, with, yeah, with many of the similar ideas. And is yeah. in a way a more kind of sophisticated yeah. version. But the conceptual power of the Pompidou is, is unmatched. Yeah. And, and sometimes the most... The most radical buildings, the ones that actually change things, have a certain crudeness to them because it's the power of the idea that yeah. speaks, not the kind of refinement of the detailing. Of course, that, you know, the Pompidou is something he sort of co-created with Renzo yeah. Piano, isn't it? And what's so interesting about that concept, when, when I've spoken to them about it, is that the piazza was as important as the building. But that was the big radical it's so piece, radical. was not to use it. Um, you know, unbelievable, the, the, wasn't it? the middle of Paris, yeah. 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 So, did, so did you and, and, and Richard sort of s s develop a, sort of a, a, a conversation along these sort of ideas quite early on? Um, no, because, you know, I was like a really junior person yeah. in the office and it, it, it took time to um, get to know Richard and to have that kind of access but um, he he taught me so much not just about architecture but about urbanism and the social importance of architecture about architecture as as message and yes and about the importance of creating culture in an office so you know when I left um, and uh, and then he was extremely supportive and and um, became you know developed in my career and and started the office with with Jan um, well Richard was involved with that was he no no but when when I 
joined yarn yes. in, in Future Systems and, you know, thinking how, you know, for Richard, the, the, the atmosphere inside the office, the mm. way that people communicate, the openness, the generosity, the attention, the, the kind of the, the sense of democracy and freedom, yes. all of that yeah. is so important. And we had dinner a few years ago, just he and I, and he said something that really kind of stuck with me. He said, if you can get the culture right, the office will look after itself and the buildings will look after themselves. Yeah. And, and he's right. Yeah, I've been to your, your office, your, your studio, uh, on a few occasions. And the thing which always, always I remember is shoes off. Shoes off. Yeah, as soon as you basically cross the threshold, yeah. shoes off. And what, what's the idea there? It, it's a big leveller. You know, mm. when you take your shoes off, you strip away a layer and it kind of everybody becomes more equal. I mean, I, you know, this is a little bit retrospective, perhaps, because it's also really comfortable and informal to not have shoes and it keeps the carpet clean. And we've always had a brightly coloured carpet. But, you know, you come into our office and you see this messy pile of shoes. Yeah, you do. And it... It speaks of who we are. Mm. It speaks of all of the individuals who make up the office. You know, stilettos and trainers. You know, we have the whole, the whole gamut of shoes, and, but it speaks about a sense of common endeavour. And mm. I think it's a kind of mm. subliminal message to clients when they come, and they're also asked to take their shoes off that. You know, we're all in it together, and you're not in for a passive ride. You're part of the right. You're part yeah, of the ride. Yeah, so there's something performative about it. Yeah. But is has anybody refused to remove the shoes? Oh, one one time, only one person. Will you divulge? <laughs> I can't. It, oh. would, it would be not fair. <laughs> Male or female? Male, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so you're at Richard Rogers. You 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 learned quite a lot from him, and particularly around the idea of creating a culture for creativity. You then join Future Systems, which had already been established by Jan Kalitsky. Yeah, he, he, he started Future Systems with uh, David Nixon, who was based in L.A. Yeah. Um, and did that have, a, did that have a, an ideology behind it? Was there a philosophy behind that, that business? It's not a, it wasn't a philosophy. It was, you know, it's in the name, Future Systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and... It was very speculative and very provocative. And, and, you know, it was very interesting because the work that they did um, and the work that Jan did in particular, it, it really is, it was unbuilt, but it was really seminal. It was really prescient in the way that Malraux is prescient yeah. and kind of imagining. So these were concepts? They were concepts. And, and for Jan, that was, that was almost enough. The, the building for him was, was tainted with compromise. That's always. like solar wit, isn't it? Yeah. Artists such as that, where, where actually the idea is the yeah. thing that matters. And actually it's But the idea and the iconography and the drawing and yeah. the, the sketch. Should you have been an artist? No, he no. was a, a, a great architect whose influence went much beyond the 
amount of concrete that he poured into the ground as an architect. So your time with working with Jan and, and at Future Systems, did, did you design many more buildings than you ever built? Um, well, my, I wanted to, you know, I persuaded Jan, because, you know, Future Systems was a, a kind of studio, but it, it didn't have a, a presence. It wasn't really an office. It was Jan doing drawings in his um, study. And I persuaded him to give up teaching, which was his kind of mainstay for income, to start a proper office. And I said, I'll, I'll leave Richard's office. Yeah. We, you know, do that and commit to putting some rent uh, on an office and, and, and doing that. Because for me, you know, I wanted to build and I wanted Jan to build too. And um, so that, that's how we started. But, you know, for a very many years, it was just the two of us. It was a very, very slow yes, I remember. trajectory. Yeah. But you, the media picked up on you quite early on. I, I remember reading stories in, I don't know, whatever, Architects Journal or mm. Blueprint, when people were talking mm. about future systems. People were interested yes. in, in what you had to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, um, our reputation was, was much bigger than our <laughs> <practice>. portfolio of... <laughs> Oh. Is it fair to say that Future Systems arrived in the public consciousness with the Lord's Media Centre? No, it was there before, for sure. I mean, it was there before I joined. Yeah. yeah. In the public consciousness? Um, public, no, maybe it was more the kind of architectural yes. business entity, but yeah, um, yeah I, maybe in, for the public it was... It was Lords. It's an amazing building. Mm, I mean, no. I, I, I'm a cricket fan. Proud of that. I love Lords. Mm. It's one of you know. It's an extraordinary. It's a bit like going to Wimbledon. It's sort of you walk into a magic kingdom. Mm. And and obviously one of the things Lords is famous for is tradition. Yeah. You know, it's been the same. The long room and mm. the pavilions and everything has to be just so. And here you and Jan come along and build this extraordinary futuristic building, which to some people, I guess, looked like a UFO. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that we even won the competition? I can't imagine. I, mean, I was going to ask you, how did it ever come about? How did you win that competition? Well, how, how we even put on the shortlist, but we were... So, we, we, I remember so well, we presented the competition. It must have been, gosh, um, in a, a 95. Um, because I remember I'd just had my son and that literally the day after I'd had him I was working on the report to, to finish for the, for the presentation. Anyway then Jan and I rocked up to make the presentation to the, to the board in the long room <laughs> and it was raining and we arrived and we had a couple of rolls of drawings and rang the bell and the steward came out. And he sort of looked us up and down. You know, Jan's immensely tall, and I'm really not. And uh, he said, have you come to sell something? <laughs> and I said, well, in a manner of speaking, yeah. 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 And he said, um, well, you can't come in because you're not wearing a tie, and you can't come in because you're a woman. And I said, well, <laughs> I think you'll find that we're expected. Um, so that was, you know, quite quite unnerving as a yeah. At least you, know, way of... you knew what you were dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we we just went for it. I mean, what have we got to lose? Um, so what and... was it? What, I mean, how on earth did did an organisation which wouldn't allow a woman in the long room or a man not wearing a tie? How did that organisation yeah. end up 
building one of the most iconic, futuristic-looking uh, structures in any sports arena in the world. You know, it, it, it's... Uh... I mean, what do they say when you presented it to them? What was their response? Well, they, weren't, they, they liked it. Immediately? Yeah, I mean, they were... It was very funny because there was a, um, a photo montage, and this was before computers. We were very late computer adopters, despite the name Future Systems, quite <laughs> ironic. Um, and Jan had done the, this photo montage by hand, and beautiful pieces, and you know, just cut, cut the shape out of the media center out, put it onto the photograph. And I had asked my father, knew nothing, neither of us knew anything about cricket, asked him you know, how many people we should put on the pitch <laughs> anyway, he told me the wrong number, and we had an extra man on the pitch in this photo montage, and that was the first thing they said, you've got too many men on the pitch. Forget the building. Forget the building. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then it, it gets commissioned, it gets built, and then the reaction? Well, it gets built, but you know, it wasn't just the, the design that was quite radical, it was the structure and the way it was built, it could only be built by boat builders. Oh. And it was, you know, boat builders are used to building boats upside down in their yes, boat yard. Yes, absolutely. But this was 12 meters in the air. On four legs? Two. Two legs. Um, okay. And, but constructed by um, a shipyard based in Cornwall called Pendennis. And, you know, that had all, that, all those kind of complications that went with that, with a, with a boatyard who'd never built a building before, building this... Yeah, well, they're shipbuilders <laughs> out of water, aren't they? I mean, you know. So there were enormous um, problems and kind of dramas, but we, we got there. So with a building like that, so you and Jan have been working on it, you thought it through, you put, you've put the photo montage together, but when you see it built, and finished and populated on, a, a, you know, on maybe an opening day of a test oh. match on a Thursday. It's absolutely packed. It's a beautiful summer's day. Difficult to imagine now, but it is. Is that building better than you ever imagined it would be? Or is it as you imagined it would be? Or is it faintly disappointing? No, I think it's almost exactly as really? we imagined. Oh. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very specific form. It's very sleek. It's very contained. Um, and it's, you know, it's radical by contrast to everything else that is there, but it sets up this kind of correspondence between the, um, what would they call it? The, I've forgotten the name of the, the building where the long room is. What's it oh, called? The, the pavilion. The pavilion. Yeah. So it sets up this dialogue between the pavilion yeah. um, and this... Which is a Victorian. Oh, is it Victorian? Yes, yeah, it's yeah. Victorian building, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this piece of kind of late 20th century architecture. And you've talked about this museum and Soane's interest in light, but that building for me is all about light, both in a physical sense that it, it appears to be light, mm -hmm. and I think that's the, the glass facade obviously does a lot about mm -hmm. uh, with, with that, but also the way it, it light responds to it. Mm. So, so when, when you look at the old pavilion, that brick building, it, it, sort of, it, it obviously sucks in the light. Mm. Whereas your building, it, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's this beautiful sort of, um, it omits, uh, you know, this wonderful, radiates this fantastic, it's a weird word, but I'd say sort of positivity. It just, mm. feels, it just, mm. feels, it, it just fills you with good humour to see it. I think it's partly because it's, you know, this very 
um, three-dimensional form without straight lines. It's like a lozenge, so the, the, the light bounces off it. But, it, you know, there's just coming back to the kind of Malraux thing. Another sort of formative book for me was Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, or The Medium is the Massage, and nobody knows whether that was a typo or not. But, um, and, and the building is both, you know, it is where you broadcast the news of the cricket match, um, and yet images of it are broadcast all around the world. So it is both the medium yeah. and the, the message. Which brings me back to that, sort of that fundamental statement Louis Sullivan made all those years ago when he was designing the first skyscrapers in, in Chicago about form ever following function. Is that, is, is, you know, does that fit with the Mulroe concept for you as an architect? Form following function? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it's a, a Marot thing because he, he really didn't talk about the museum from a functional perspective. But he from your point of view in the design. Does but yes, I mean, form, yes, form follows function. But, but within that, you know, it's, of course, every move you make is at one level subjective. So there's, and, and you know, form follows function. If you take that to its kind of ultimate conclusion, then everything would look the same, mm. you know, because it doesn't, because everybody layers their own um, preconceptions, their own ideas, their own drivers, their own taste, yeah. their own line. Um, but yes, um, to, be, to be reductive is extremely important. And I think it's never been more important than now where, you know, we have a, a responsibility to, to, I don't know, to be more frugal in the way that we design, to make use of buildings that exist, to do only what is really needed, but to do it in a beautiful um, and considered way. So let's, let's talk about some, some more modern buildings. So, so just to finish the future system story, obviously you, you, you make the Selfridges in Birmingham, becomes a very famous, very beautiful building. Uh, you and Jan decide to go your own separate ways. Uh, and then very sadly, I think he, he, he dies, doesn't he? Mm. And then, was it in 2009? Yeah. And then at which point you, you think, well, Future Systems really died with, with Jan, it was his idea. Yeah. I'll set up ALA. So it was very important for me that um, I honor Jan by, you know, when, um, I started up my own practice that I would change the name and, that, you know, with Future Systems, with Jan's death, died Future Systems. Mm. Um, he started it and it was, it was just right. But I had the same team. We um, stayed in the same office. So it's not like this big shift. But what, was, what I kind of really underestimated was how difficult it would be to make that shift and how long it would take us to kind of understand who we were becoming. Um, because it's an un unusual and untypical way to, to start something because it was more of a kind of gentle evolution. Yeah. Um, but I, I now have um, uh, three partners, three uh, directors, and it is a much more collaborative way of working. It was the way that, you know, I wanted to, to work. It is much more 
ideas driven than formally driven. So, you know, if, um, so back to Mal Back to Mal Road, yeah. back to the power of the idea to yeah. kind of drive things. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about two very specific projects then, mm -hmm. both in the museum world uh, and the ideas you had behind them. The first is the, the V&A and the new courtyard and mm -hmm. that major new entrance, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary what you've done. There. Um, and then the second one is, is Matt in Lisbon, mm -hmm. um, which is another you know, arts and museum space. Mm -hmm. what, what, are the, what are the ideas behind those? Um, well, we were, you know, interesting because we were working on them in in parallel. Um, but the, if I start with the the V&A, because there are, I think there are more parallels with the kind of museum without walls idea. Um, our proposition was to to really see the to to see the museum as an urban project as much as it was an architectural project mm. and to make a better connection between the museum and the street and the museum and the city and the museum and the public so, so, so for people who don't know that building you know it, it has the main facade on on, on the road and it's got sort of yeah. quite shallow steps up into quite a grand entrance yeah. And then round the corner, that's on the Cromwell Road, yeah, isn't it? So, so the main, you know, the original main entrance to the museum yeah. is on this very busy traffic artery, mm. hugely dramatic, grand entrance, yeah. somewhat intimidating. Yeah. Classic um, Victoriana. Classic, anyway. classic Victoriana. And our challenge was to create a new entrance off Exhibition Road, round which is round the corner. An exhibition road runs from South Kensington Tube Station all the way to Hyde Park, and it's the home of three museums and Imperial College and the Royal Albert Hall. You know, a, 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 a place of you know, it's where the you know Henry Cole started the V&A in um, 1857, and it was you know the, the schoolroom for the public. Yes, it came out of the Great um, Exhibition, you know, didn't it? Yeah. Amazing, amazing, and 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 that kind of notion still is as relevant today as it, as it was then. But when you looked at the South Kensington, uh, at the Exhibition Road frontage, there was this um, huge stone, very opaque screen. Mm. And behind that was the site for our um, kind of speculation for, for the competition because they wanted a, a very large exhibition space but to have it below ground when it, it was very clear to me when we first kind of went there as a, a team to look at the site that the success of this gallery space was going to completely depend on renegotiating the relationship between the museum and the street and just creating an altogether more informal way mm. of entering a museum. And so we proposed something that was really quite brave at the competition stage, because it could have lost the competition for us, which was to radically alter the grade one Aston Webb screen. Yeah. And then we had to make those same arguments to the heritage bodies and the 
planners. And this is the V&A, right? And this is the V&A, the Victoria and, and it's Museum, a grade one listed building. And it's the about design. you don't mess <laughs> yeah. with it. And also about great design. And, yeah. and you know, all the people have been involved in making those buildings, that, that screen. It, it all, you know, the, a museum, you could argue, should be looking after that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, so for, for me, the, the kind of the success of the project depended on renegotiating the relationship between the museum and the street. Mm. So we, we proposed a radical alteration, which was to repurpose it, to open it up, to treat it more as a colonnade, to let people drift in off the street, and to allow the, the city. Hmm? And what, what happens to the screen? Well, we took the screen away and then we rebuilt it in its altered form with the original stone wherever we could. And how hard is that to sell? Um, to the V&A, not so hard because we won the competition, but to the, the planners, it was more difficult. Mm. Um, and when we first presented it, they just said no. Um, so we went away and we reflected and we asked the V&A if they would lend us um, one of their researchers so that we could do more research mm. about that screen and the V&A, more research about the heritage of the building than probably English heritage knew themselves. And when we were doing that so research... So take a museological approach to it. Yes. Yeah. And when we were doing that research, came across the original competition drawing that Aston Webb did for the competition for the V&A. And the screen was really low. It was like a kind uh. of low balustrade. And behind the screen was a garden. And what had happened was... And he won the competition on yeah. that... that scheme. During construction, um, the building went over budget, you know, like buildings tend to do. Yeah. They ran out of money and the boiler rooms, which were originally designed to go underground, were now housed above ground and the screen was altered to hide the boiler rooms. Yeah, yeah. So we, when, once we found that drawing, I knew, I knew we had the <laughs> argument. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. You were just doing the right thing. <laughs> By them. We were doing, yeah. it was on a kind of hunch, but yeah. it was, you know, the, the boiler rooms are long since gone. And we then could successfully argue that the social imperatives of access and accessibility outweighed the conservation arguments. Yes. So it's, 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 it's reminiscent to me, at least, of, of the difference between entering Tate Britain up those portico steps mm -hmm. or take modern when you just walk yes. down the ramp yeah don't you think yeah. and it's got that same feel yeah. just wander in you're welcome and, then... and that's what happened at Pompidou and it's mm. what happens at um, the exhibition road entrance you just can drift in, drift in. off the street and it, it is a very different way of but then museum. once you've drifted in you, you are, you're facing a sea of white porcelain yeah what, what's that? You know, t t t tell me the thing about that, because so, it's Portuguese, okay. isn't it? No, uh, no it, it uh, was made in the Netherlands. No. Portuguese is in Lisbon. I mean, no, I'm aware of that. <laughs> no, no. But actually, they're Spanish tiles. <laughs> okay. But so this, 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 this white tiled uh, floor, why? Because the, our, our scheme was to keep as much of the courtyard flat and to be able to be used by the public in any way, to just make a public space that, you know, belonged mm. to the public. Um, 
And then having, having made that move, you know, it's the V&A. You look around the V&A, it's like, it's like here. Every piece, every surface is considered and embellished and the material is, has a provenance and, mm. you know, it tells a story. So we, you know, we have to give this courtyard a very particular character. We have to bring light to a building that's, you know, the, 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 the terracotta, the, the yeah. brickwork, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but it can be quite dark. Quite somber. So if yeah. we, somber is the word. So if we create a surface that is light, it's going to reflect and, and make it feel a much lighter, happier place. And we started, um, we were a bit obsessed by ceramics at the time because we were working on the Lisbon Museum, right. which has a completely ceramic facade. And we asked to be taken on a kind of tour of the ceramic gallery by the, the keeper of ceramics who knows more about <laughs> you know, his subject than anyone else in the world. And it was amazing and inspiring. And, and we came away knowing that this is what we had to do to create a kind of ceramic uh, courtyard. We could have used Portland stone, granite. You know, yeah, York stone, ordinary, anything. You know, yeah. But to give it a very particular character and, and to use it as a kind of, um, as a demonstration, if you like, the, the, the kind of link between industry and artisanship, yeah. mass production yeah. and craftsmanship, because that's the essence of the v and in our kind of research, we, we went to many um, ceramic specialists. We came across this extraordinary company based in the Netherlands called Tikkala, who are the oldest um, business in the Netherlands. And they specialize in not ceramic, porcelain. And the raw clay of porcelain is so beautiful. The color is so fine compared to the kind of rather biscuity color of, of, of ceramics. And it has this sort of pale bluish white tinge. Mm. It's, and you associate porcelain with being a very fine, fragile material, but actually it's incredibly strong, it's impermeable, it doesn't, you know, you can't, there's no frost damage because it, it doesn't absorb any water. And we worked with Tekela to produce a tile, but the, the pattern of the, the tiling in the courtyards is incredibly important because we wanted to address the built-in paradox of the, of the scheme, which is the big event, the headline space for the big exhibition space is below ground. Yes. You can't see it. So, we came up with this notion how, and I'm going back to Mulroe now, but how do you make visible the invisible? Yeah. And this notion, I mean, just when we came up with that kind of notion, it, it's, you know, it's, it's quite captivating. And so we took the three-dimensional geometry of the structure that supports the courtyard, which is the ceiling of the gallery below. Yeah. We flattened it as a two-dimensional surface, and from that created this very visually complex pattern of tiles that I hope in some way is a kind of gives you this reading of what is below, of this sort of energy below. And it gives the 
spaces yes. in this particular character. I can't think of a public courtyard I've ever seen like it. And we must move on, but I should just mention this, you know, the point of the whole of the whole project, which was the, the exhibition space, which is amazing. It's huge, absolutely huge. I, I, I don't know if it's the biggest in London, but it's certainly, you know, it's, it's gargantuan. And what great shows they've had, have oh. they not? And, and it's given them a freedom to put on shows that you couldn't otherwise make because it's so flexible. And that, particularly, I think, the Christian Dior show. Oh, but I mean, what's so, you know, the whole point of the the space was A, not to, to do a kind of black box, white box, right. because that's, you know, you get that everywhere. That's not very v yeah. But it's hugely flexible so that you can create a completely yeah. immersive show exactly. and not have any visibility yeah. of what is there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the, the deal was a great example. Yeah, it was a really good that. example. So, okay, so that's that building, that, the, the idea behind that courtyard. What, what about Matt, the, the building in Lisbon? Matt was, was again, you know, looking at, the, looking at the museum as an urban proposition yeah. and looking at its kind of influence and remit beyond its walls. And that, that it's on a fantastic site. It's the westernmost part of Europe overlooking the River Tagus. Beautiful historic city to the yeah. north. And yet the waterfront, which is so spectacular mm. with the most incredible light, it's completely cut off from the rest of the city by train tracks and a four-lane highway. And so one of our first moves was to persuade the client and then the city of Lisbon, that as well as design a museum, we needed to design a bridge yeah. that would connect to the city, the other side of the, the tracks, because there are not many bridges and it, it was just too difficult to get to. And we realized that unless you could make it easy for people to get to, it wouldn't be visited. Enough. Yeah, well, just like Tate Modern and the Millennium Bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. needed it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we identified a, a square on the other side of the train tracks where we could span at, um, without any need for steps, to span over the highway and the railway tracks and land on the roof of the museum. And in that one move, and that sweep, that one move was the kind of generator for so much, the, the roof becomes a destination in itself. Yeah. And the roof is not only this amazing vantage point from which you can look out towards the river, you can also, for the first time, you can look back at the city and have a completely new perspective. So it's these kind of exchange of, of views and um, vistas, the... which actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. Of, you know, here we're just Absolutely. surrounded by that in a very masterful. But way. what strikes me specifically about that building, and it sort of chimes with what you're saying earlier about how times have changed and how how um, sensitivities and temperaments of architects have changed. I mean, you talk about the V&A big Victorian statement building, um, you know, comes out of Prince Albert's enthusiasm for knowledge, whereas. Your building in Lisbon just seems to be absolutely at one with the landscape. It's not trying to beat the landscape. It's trying to be within the landscape. It's almost like a chord. 
Mm. And it, well, it's, you know, it, it has a very soft form, but we did something that is very untypical for architects. Because of this importance of setting up a kind of literal and metaphorical connection between the museum and the city, the views were everything. The views from the city across the river and the views from the to the city. That, that was, you know, sacrosanct. So we did not build as high as we were allowed to build mm. in order to preserve those views. And that meant um, excavating and at times below the water table, which, you know, feels a bit counterintuitive, but it was the right thing to do. Mm, the Dutch because it makes it feel very settled in, yeah. its, in its place. A lot of the, I think a lot of the Rijksmuseums, below, yeah. you know, and so it's, yeah, it's, it seems completely mad, doesn't it? But it is, it is doable. But the, the result is this beautiful building, which is, as, you know, has this elegance because it's not trying to be too big. It just fits within the landscape. So I suppose the final question, Amanda, is where are we with architecture now? And, where, and what is it like for an architect in, in, in a, a, a pandemic world? Is, is it, has everything just been stopped or are people needing to have, things done differently. I know you're thinking, are you involved now in a Maggie Centre? Yes. In Southampton? Which, yeah, which is which finished. Are, it is now finished. Mm -hmm. Those are amazing places, aren't oh, they? Oh, what an initiative. Well, I mean, that tells you really something about architecture. what an initiative. Mm. So fantastic. So, so, so where is architecture now? We are all, we all need a reset. We've all, you know, had time to, to think and to, to rethink. Um, and We've had a lot of conversations in the office over Zoom in the pandemic, you know, about you know what are the things that we should rethink and how can we rethink the way we work mm. and how can we maybe rethink and reprioritize our um, our responsibilities as as architects. And in terms of the way that we work, one of, one of the conversations that we had was. You know that I just kind of posited as an idea. Could could we reimagine the office as a family home? We we've worked out of a, a huge top lit warehouse for over twenty years in Notting Hill. First in Notting Hill, and then in um, off Caledonian Road in Islington. And you know, was this time? You know, thinking about smaller spaces and. And it just coincided with an opportunity that came up. And um, we have, with my three directors and I, we've, we've bought a, um, a Georgian grade two listed building in Bloomsbury. And we are reimagining re the offices as a family home. <laughs> you are, you, so and you we are going literally, to... We did it. I mean, the two, you know, it happened. It was just one of those... But how ironic to say that in this particular building. Exactly. So here you are. <laughs> In an architect's building, in a Georgian environment, which feels like a family yeah. home, in the 21st century, as an architect, gone to, gone to a Georgian building to create a family home, that's brilliant. On that note, Amanda Levite, I think we should end. Thank you very much for being such a brilliant guest. Well, on this thank you for having me in it's this wonderful, wonderful place. Thank you. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the talk, it would be great if you would consider making a contribution which would enable us to continue our wider educational programs. And you can do so on sone.org. We appreciate your support and look forward to welcoming you back to the Sone again soon.